Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 23, and the word of the sovereign Lord reads this way. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. Professor and Associate Dean at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, Donald S. Whitney, once wrote, As wonderful and sophisticated as the heart is, it was never made to be just a heart, but part of a body. It has no value to the body outside of the body, and the heart itself cannot thrive outside of the body. As incredible and wonderful as you are, Christian, you were never made just to be an individual Christian, but a part of a body. As every organ and every cell is, is God created to be an active member of, of the human body, so every true Christian is God created to be an active member of the local body of Christ. So today we're going to wrap up our, our three-part series here uh, this morning about the church. <clears throat> and in this series, we've been talking about and looking at what the church is, what the church does, and then what that means for all of us who belong to the church. And before we jump in here today, let me just give you a really quick review <clears throat> of what we talked about to this point, because what we're going to talk about today is really going to require a bit of context. And so what we need to realize is we've established from the very beginning is that the church is God's family. It is the children of God, both universally and locally. And what the church does is it defends and displays the gospel of Jesus Christ. It protects and it proclaims the gospel. 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says that the church is the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. The church is the household of God. It is God's family protecting and proclaiming the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ for all of the world. The church is the instrument that God has ordained and is using to fulfill his mission here on the earth to bring salvation to his, to his people. Now, that's what the church is. That's what the church does. How does the church then accomplish its mission? Well, Jesus himself in the Great Commission laid out for us his plan. He said that we are to go into all the world and to make disciples, which means we are to evangelize the lost. We are to share the hope of Christ with people and preach to them in the gospel and call them to repent and believe. And those who actually believe then, we are to integrate them into the body of Christ into the church through baptism and then once they're in the church, we're to help then train them and teach them and help them to grow to maturity <coughs> so, they, <excuse> me, <coughs> so that they likewise become parts of the mission of God. That is the plan. That is how God is saving the world. It is through the church. It is through the replication process of discipleship. And as we talked about, there are three factors or three things that, that the church must, without question, absolutely get right if we're going to accomplish the mission of God. And that is the truth of the church, 
That is the leadership of the church, and that is the membership of the church. And over the last three weeks, we have been spending quite a bit of time unpacking these three things. In fact, the first week that we talked about this, we talked about the truth of the church. We talked about how, how, how there are three components to the truth that the, that the church stands on. You have the scripture as the foundation of all truth. You have doctrine, which is the teaching of the truth from scripture. And then you have creeds and confessions, which are our declaration of what we believe about the truth. Scripture is the, found, the foundation of our truth. And as such, it is the very word of God. Again, the, the Greek word we use over and over again is theonoustos. It's the breath of God, which means it is his very word. And that means it's authoritative. It is inerrant. It is infallible. It is sufficient. That means the, God, the word of God is without error. The word of God is unfailing, and it's enough to bring salvation to the world. And on that foundation, the church builds its doctrine, which is its teachings about the church. The doctrines of the church are how we communicate very clearly to other people and members of the church around us what the Bible is actually saying. Our doctrines help us to understand essential issues like who God is in his nature. And as a result of who he is and who we are in light of that, our doctrines help us to understand the nature of Scripture uh, and what the gospel is and who Christ is and why faith in him is absolutely essential. Our doctrines help us to take all the essential aspects of the Christian faith and clearly then teach them so that other people will understand them. And then we have our confession or our creeds, and they act as the dividing line between what we believe and what we don't believe, what, 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 is, what is true and what is untrue. Our creeds help us to identify really who actually is a believer and who's not, and, and they help us to discern what is a church and what really isn't a church but a cult. Scripture is the foundation of truth, doctrine is the teaching about the truth, and confession is a declaration of the truth. And that's what we talked about in the first week. And then the second week, which was last week, we talked about the leadership of the church. <clears throat> and what we discovered is the leadership of the church is, is about service. Those who lead, serve. And those who serve, lead. Which means leadership ultimately is service, and service is leadership, right? And that means there are a lot of ways to lead in a church because there's a lot of ways to serve. That's also the reason why, right, that we require that those who serve do so in accordance with what the Word of God says, and that we require those who actually serve to be members of the church who agree to our statement of faith, because every act of service really is an act of leadership, from, from teaching children to, um, to being on the worship team to even volunteering for VBS. It's really an act of leadership in the church. Now, more specifically, we talked about how the Bible specifies two important leadership roles in the church. There's the deacons and there's the elders. And as we discussed, deacons are the practical leaders of the church, right? They meet practical needs like, you know, taking, taking care of, of church buildings and, and feeding hungry people and helping people to get rides to the doctor and, and, and collecting the offerings and passing out the elements for the Lord's table. Deacons serve a vital and important role in the church, and the Bible spells out what those are and what the qualifications are. Now, elders, on the other hand, lead through theological service. They meet the theological and the spiritual needs of the church, such as prayer and studying the word and preaching the word. Their job is to, in, in effect, shepherd the flock. That's, that's what the word she, uh, pastor means. It means to, to be a shepherd. 
And, and the elders of the church or the pastors are responsible for the spiritual care of the church. Um, and as such, they lead through preaching the word and, and through correcting of false doctrines and rebuking people in their sin and, and counseling people when, when they're struggling. Their job is to equip the members of the church, as Paul tells us, for the works of the ministry so that each member does his and her part to, to fulfill the Great Commission. And with that, the elders of the church are identified as the overseers of the church. They're the primary human leadership of the church under the direct, direct leadership of Christ. And what, what we made clear last week is the Bible, the biblical model for leadership, is not simply to have one guy, one pastor who, who then you know, is overseeing the entire church operation, but rather a group of elders who lead the church under the leadership of Christ. The, the biblical model is, is for the church to have a board of qualified men, <clears throat> a board of qualified men who've been theologically trained and, and work together as a council to lead the church under the prayerful, careful leadership of Christ. And yes, there's still a senior teaching pastor uh, or elder in the church, but he is just one elder among many, and that protects both the church and it protects also the leaders themselves. Now, with that, this is a very short summary. That's what it is, which means we have covered really a lot of ground in the last couple of weeks, in the last couple of messages. And if you've missed any of that, my encouragement for you simply is this go back and listen. Uh, we post these on SoundCloud, our website, and now I'm actually uploading them to YouTube uh, with, the, with the individual slides so you can kind of follow along if you'd like to do it that way. But this will help you to have context for what we're talking about today. Right? Um, so with that, we've talked about the truth of the church. Again, a big subject. The leadership of the church, another big subject. And now we're going to explore what it means for the church to have a membership. And I'm going to tell you, if there's a part in this entire conversation that I'm going to get people pushed back on me for, it's this. It's church membership. Because in America, especially, many people just, you know, they believe that membership of the church is just irrelevant, right? We just are so individualistic. We just think that that's just not important. Many people believe that being a member of, of, the, of the local church is, is pointless. In fact, many people believe that church membership isn't even really biblical, and they'll say things like, well, you know, I'm a Christian, which means I'm already part of the universal body of believers anyway. You know, I don't have to be part of a local church, right? I don't have to be part of a local church to be a believer, right? And in fact, I identify with all kinds of groups, not, 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 not just one particular church. I'd like to go to all the different churches, and, 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 and I think that I'm a member of all those churches simultaneously. In fact, some people will say mem membership is just a made-up thing. The idea of an official church membership is a man-made um, doctrine. They will say, nowhere in the Bible is church membership explicitly commanded. To which I would say, that's correct. The Bible does not explicitly say the words, and thou shalt become a member of a local church. Okay? It, it, doesn't, it doesn't say that. Right? That is correct. The Bible doesn't explicitly command that people you know, enter into a, a, an agreement to become a member of a local church. And because of that, people have adopted this notion, I really just don't need to be a member of the church. Or at least, I don't need to become a member of the church officially. I can just attend some church for years and consider myself part of the church family and never officially join. I can, I can you know, church hop all that I like to if I, if I want to. 
And there are even some denominations like, like Calvary Chapel. Now, when I say Calvary Chapel, I mean, like, I came from a Calvary Chapel. I love Calvary Chapel. I love, you know, we, I loved Chuck Smith. But they don't believe, they're a, they're a denomination that doesn't believe in church membership officially in their, in their doctrine. Now, some will say, well, wait a minute, Calvary Chapel is non-denominational. They're not a denomination. That's not correct. They say they're non-denominational, but if you have a statement of faith and you have guidelines by which all your other churches have to meet, then you are a denomination by, by default. But with that, we love them none the same. I mean, all the same. And, and, and one of the doctrines and, and, and the distinctives of their church is they don't believe specifically, explicitly in membership of the church because they say the Bible doesn't command that. Well, the problem with that stance is if that is your official position, then the standard for what you actually believe is actually in trouble. And you might even have to reevaluate whether or not you actually are a Christian because there are lots of things that the Bible doesn't ex- explicitly say that we believe. For instance, the, the words that Je- the, the Bible doesn't actually have Jesus clearly expli- explicitly say the words, I am God. Okay? Now, we can make a great case for the divinity of Christ by the text. Right? And in fact, we, you know, John 1, 1 said in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. But Jesus himself never actually says the words, I am God. Now, he says a lot of things that help us to believe and understand that he is God. When he says, I am, or ego iemi, <coughs> we know what that means. But if you want to get down to the nuts and bolts, he doesn't actually say the three words, I am God. Right? But we know that he is by the scriptures. We know that he is, is the God the Son. We know that he's divine. We know that he's the second member of the Trinity. Which, by the way, is another thing that we believe without explicit statements from the Bible about. The Trinity is inferred from the text. Because the text never says, the, thy Lord thy God is a triune God. Those words just don't exist in the text. <clears throat> the word Trinity is not found in the Bible. We know that. But as a Christian... We understand that the Trinity is an essential part of who God is. If you don't believe in the Trinity, you don't really believe in God. Because when we read the full counsel of what the, what the Bible itself reveals, what we see is that God is one in essence and three in persons. When you read the scriptures, you will see that there's one God in three persons. We can see the statements from the Bible say that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. But also this text helps us to understand that God is not the Son, and the Son is not the Holy Spirit. But they are all fully God, not partially God. That's what we see in the text. We believe this because the full implications of the Scriptures teach that. And that's the same with the divinity of Christ as well. It's also the same with the humanity of Christ, His full humanity as well. You see, the Bible doesn't have to spell out a doctrine in one verse for it to be true. And so just because the Bible doesn't explicitly say church membership isn't, you know, just just because the Bible doesn't explicitly say church membership is important doesn't mean that it's not. In fact, I believe that you can make a compelling biblical case for church membership. In fact, I believe that the church membership, though not explicitly stated in the text, is actually demanded by the text I believe that the New Testament, if properly understood, leaves no doubt that that all who believe in Christ are to become members of a local church and identified with that church, and those who refuse to do so are really openly defying the will of God. 
The Bible teaches that all believers are to become integrated into the local church gathering of believers, and they are to, to, to be accountable to that church and accountable for that church, and they are to serve and serve alongside other believers. And rather than me just having you take my word for it, though, I'd like to offer you six pieces of evidence to support this claim. And the first one begins with number one, is the, is, it's the word itself, ecclesia, the gathering or the church. This is the word in Greek that's used over and over again for the church, ecclesia. And over and over again, when we see that word, the word church is the vast majority of the time it is used not referring to the universal body of the believers, but it's referring to specific local gatherings. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, the church of God that is in Corinth. It is a specific church identified with a city, with a group of people, the specific group of people that are there located in that church. 1 Corinthians 16, 19, the churches of Asia, again, churches in a specific geographic region, greet you. Let's get more precise. Aquila and Prisca together with the church in their house send you hearty, hearty greeting to the Lord. So now there's... A, a, a smaller gathering in someone's house that's identifiable. They know who belong to that church. Galatians chapter 1, verse 9, the churches of Galatia. Ephesians chapter 1, to the saints in Ephesus. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, a location, notice this, with the overseers and the deacons, with the church leadership of that church. We can go on and on and on. And what we see in the Word of God is that this word, ecclesia, the vast majority of the times is not specifically a universal body of believers, but a local gathering. People belong to a gathering, a local specific place where people come together. It's the gathering of God's people. It's the called out ones together. An individual Christian belongs to these gatherings and they identify themselves with these gatherings and Paul wrote letters to these gatherings. So that means if Paul wrote a letter to your church, that means that letter was for you. If you were in, the church of, in one of the churches in Galatia and you received that letter that was a rebuke intended for those churches there, that letter was for you. But it was not for the Philippians. <coughs> that was not directed to them. You see, it was understood at that time, if you were a Christian, you identified yourself with, you gathered with, you were a part of, a member of a specific gathering at a specific location. Church membership is implied by the fact that there is a local church. Two, the second piece of evidence for the church is church discipline. Not a very popular subject in American evangelicalism, but it is definitely something that, that we have to consider. Church membership is implied by the way that church is supposed to discipline its members. One of the things that we see clearly from Scripture is that part of church life is church discipline. And, and the church is called upon to exercise a certain kind of authority and a certain kind of power in the lives of believers. John Piper, in, in, in a sermon on this particular subject, noted, he said, Consider the implications of Matthew chapter 18, 15 through 17, where the church, ecclesia, um, appears to be the final court of appeals in matters of church authority as it relates to membership. The, the word of the Lord says this in Matthew. If your brother sins against you, go and tell it 
tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. He says, if, if there is no such church membership, how can you define the group that will take up this sensitive and very weighty matter to exhort the unrepentant person and, and finally rendering a judgment about his standing in the community? It's hard to believe that just anyone who showed up claiming to be a Christian could have part in such a gathering. Surely the church must be defined, be a definable group to handle such weighty and difficult things. The fact is, Jesus in this text himself identifies this body of believers and its authority and its influence in matters of life and faith for believers. And by doing so, he makes it clear that the church membership is not only important, but it's actually essential. The third evidence for church membership is the reality of excommunication. Again, not another, another doctrine that nobody really likes to talk about nowadays, right? But it's sometimes a necessary reality. When you read the scriptures, you see very clearly the concept of excommunication exists, that certain people who were in the church have been, have been then cast out of the church. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Besides, if you ever want to read about a church going sideways and allowing horrible sin to infiltrate, read 1 Corinthians. I'm telling you, make your hair stand up. I mean, not mine, but yours, okay? First Corinthians chapter 5 says, says this. He says, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Great question. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. See, John Piper notes that there are two implications here. One is that there is an in-the-church group, and then there's an outside of the church group, right? Being in the church and being outside of the church are definable things. Those in the church are identifiable as well as those outside of the church. The other implication is that, that the person can be removed from being in the church. Such a formal removal would not be possible if there was no such thing as a clear membership who is accountable you know, uh, to part of this body and who is not. The simple fact is the Bible commands that evil people be removed from membership. This implies membership. It also implies that membership is desirable and that, that membership is valuable because otherwise, who cares if you get kicked out of the church, right? Like, they would, like so what? It doesn't matter to me. The fourth line of evidence is a call for members to submit to the leaders of the church. Again, I'm going to lean on John Piper some more here. He says, the point here is that without membership, there is in who in the New Testament is, is he referring to that, that, that must submit to specific leaders? Paul writes, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who would have to give an account. Who is that that Paul is calling to submit to church leadership? Right. He said in, in the first letter, in first, I mean, first letter of Thessalonians, Paul writes, we ask you, brothers, notice the word, brothers, could also say sisters, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and, 
and admonish you and to esteem them highly to love because of their work. Notice Paul is obviously calling and talking to brothers and sisters in Christ, and he's saying to respect your leaders. These are brothers and sisters. These are believers to esteem them and submit to leadership. How does this make any sense if there is no sense of, of belonging to that leadership or the local church? I mean, think about this. As a member, if you are a member of the universal body of Christ and there's a call to submit to the, the church leadership, does that mean you submit to every pastor and every preacher that's ever had anything to say in the entire world? Is that what you're supposed to do? Does, 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 does the pastor in, you know, in, in Connecticut, in a little backwoods town, with what he has to say, does he have authority to speak into your life and tell you, you know, what you're supposed to do, spiritually speaking? No. The idea of submission to leadership only works in the local church when a person is a member of that, that. Again, John Piper asked the question, how is this leadership and submission going to work if there's no membership defining who has made the commitment to, to be led and those who are chosen as leaders? If we downplay the importance of membership, it is difficult to see how we could take these commandments to submit and to lead seriously and even practically. The fact that the Bible commands submission to church leadership is itself a command to church membership. Now, the fifth piece of evidence um, is the opposite side of the coin, and that is the fact that pastors, elders, shepherds of the church will be held accountable by God for their flock. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, we read, <clears throat> shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Now, I'm a pastor, right? Who then am I responsible to shepherd? Is it every believer that ever lives? Is it every believer in, in, in the United States? I mean, is it every Christian that I come in contact with? Am I, am I supposed to shepherd them? Is it even every believer in this community, people who, who, who profess faith in Christ who won't step foot in here? Am I supposed to be responsible for them? Am I supposed to shepherd them? Well, notice what Paul says. He says in Hebrews, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. And notice, as those who will have to give an account. The Bible says something very important to me that I take super seriously. It says, I'm going to have to give an account to God. One day I'm going to stand before God and give an account for those that I shepherded and those that I have led. He is going to judge me and hold me accountable for the way that I cared for these people spiritually. Does that include everyone in Boron? I praise the Lord not. Right? Am I going to, give, am I going to be accountable for every person who professes to be a Christian in this region? Or, do, or does that just simply include the, the flock gathered here at First Baptist Church? The fact of the matter is, I'm going to be held accountable implies that there is a group of people that God has brought into my life that I'm accountable for. And that's the members of this church. I'm accountable to the members of this church. Praise the Lord for that. But even that, I take that very seriously. I lie awake at night sometimes when people ask me for counseling advice and wonder if I actually gave them the right advice, if I steered them in the right direction. Did I love them enough? Did I care for them enough? Did I express you know, um, you know, the truth of God's word enough? I'm going to be held accountable for how I've loved and prayed for and counseled and preached and trained the membership of this church. And I'm going to be held accountable by God for how I shepherded the souls of the people here. Which means, then, 
If you refuse to be a member of this church, I'm not responsible for you. That's, that's the truth. Because, because how can I be? If, if you refuse to be someone who identifies with this group and submit to, the, to, to this church leadership, how can I be responsible for, for your spiritual care? I'll do my best, but how am I supposed to be responsible for that? One of the strangest things I've ever experienced in my life, by the way. And I'll, I'll tell you, coming into the ministry has been a strange experience by itself. Right? Seven years in, a lot of strange things still happen. But one of the strangest experiences in my life has been is, that, that, is how somebody can come to this church twice, like once, like every six months. And then I'll see them in public, and they'll go, Hey, pastor! Like, I'm cool with that. You can call me pastor, right? But then they'll say to their friends, Hey, let me introduce you to my pastor, which is really weird to me, you know, because I may be a pastor, and, and I, believe me, I, it's the greatest job I've ever had, even though it's the hardest job I've ever had, right? But the thing is, is if you don't belong to this church, I might be a pastor, but I'm not your pastor, right? right? You've not joined our church family, you know, and not agreed to the leadership that God has given me to give to you. If you don't, if, that, if you're not a part of that, then I'm, then you're not accountable to me, and I'm not accountable for you. I have people sometimes once in a while will come and they'll come to church like twice and they'll see me at the Boron Food Market, right? And then they'll be in line. I'll come right behind them and they got like a little six pack of beer and they're like trying to hide it from me. I'm like, <laughs> that's between you and God, all right? All right? Just, I don't see nothing. Just leave. All right. The reality is God has called me to be accountable to these here. I love this community and the Christians here. They're my brothers and sisters in Christ, but I'm accountable for these here. This is my church family. That means every one of you, every one of you, every one of you are on a list on my phone that I pray for every single day. Don't believe me? Ask my wife, right? I mean, I care. I think about, I think about what we're going to say. Right? I take it seriously, right? The fact of the matter is that I'm going to be held accountable by God implies that there is a membership of the church, that membership in the church is a biblical thing. Now, the last piece of evidence I want to share with you that validates church membership is just simply the metaphor of the body that you find in scripture. And there's lots of that. I just want to share with you a chunk of text. So just hang on to your hats. So it's going to be, it's going to be 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1, all the way through verse 27. So you're going to write that down. You can look that up and look at it yourself later. I just want you to hear the language. Now, I understand the context of this, this, this passage, okay? The context of this passage is spiritual gifts, how people are using those spiritual gifts, and, and, and how people are to love one another. But this text right here is really a clear demonstration of our interconnectedness as a body of believers. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1 says this. Excuse me. Um, it, says, it says, for the body, actually, I think it's verse 12. I apologize. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For it is one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. The foot, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the, where the sense of hearing? 
If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would, be, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I do not need you, nor the head to the feet, I do not need you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Or, I mean, and on and, and those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts to, are greater with greater modesty, or treated with greater modesty, without, uh, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, given greater honor to those parts that lack it, and that there may be no division to the body, but that the members may have the, have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Verse 27, look at this. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. This metaphor of the body helps us to see that there's, that there's a membership that's, in, that's, that's implied. But not only that, it also clearly expresses our need for each other. You need the body and the body needs you. You need the church, and the church needs you. Again, let me just give you the words of Donald S. Whitney, now that you have some context, and hear what he's saying here. As wonderful and sophisticated as the heart is, it was never made to be just a heart. It's part of a body. It has no value to the body outside of the body, and the heart itself cannot thrive outside of the body. As incredible and wonderful as you are, Christian, you were never made just to be an individual Christian, but part of the body. As every organ and every cell is God created to be an active member of the human body, so every true Christian is God created to be an active member of a local body of Christ. The Bible may not spell out explicitly the command, thou shalt be a member of the church, but I believe that, that, that church membership is clear. I, I, as clear as the Trinity, as clear as the divinity of Christ, the Bible calls believers to become members of the local church. Now, why is this important? It's important for a lot of reasons, but let me just give you five really, really quick. Number one, it strengthens the members of the church individually. Being part of the local church strengthens you. It helps you to grow. It helps you to mature. Not only do you have a pastor you know, who is accountable to shepherd you and love you and pray for you, you have deacons in the church who are there to help you. You have brothers and sisters in Christ who are there to grow with you and fellowship with you and encourage you. You will never grow to the, to the level of spiritual maturity that God is calling you to without, on your own without the church. Being part of the church strengthens individual members. Number two, it, it also strengthens the church. Every single member of the church is important to the body of Christ. Every one of them. Everyone has a part to play. You have a part to play if you're a believer. Everyone works together to build up the church. Remember, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, the church grows up into every way, into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Every member of the body contributes strength to the body. Every member of the body has something to offer the other members. 
Right? So membership is important because it strengthens the members and it strengthens the body itself. Number three, it also protects members. Being part of a church, a church that stands on the foundational truths of Scripture, protects individual members. Paul says this. He says he gave the apostles, again, Ephesians 4, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That means every person that's part of the church that, that, that is a believer is to be equipped for the work of the ministry. And there's a purpose for that is to build up the body of Christ until we all, all attain unity of the faith, knowledge of the Son of God, and, be, and, and to mature manhood, become spiritually mature, to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ, and there's a purpose, so that, so that we're no longer children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Being part of the local church helps members to become unified, grow in their knowledge of God, grow to maturity, and it helps them to identify and, and steer away from false doctrines and false teachers. And if there's something that, that, that's, that, that percolates all across the country, it's that. If there's something we need protection from, it's that. Members in the church, you know, membership in the church protects the members of the church. It helps to protect against temptation as you have people in your life, help you grow to be accountable. It helps to protect from false prophets. It helps to, to prevent against spiritual apathy. Because every Christian that I know who claims to be a Christian who doesn't want to be a part of a local church, ends up being somebody that's a sideline Christian that's not really even involved at all in the work that God's called them to be. Being part of the church protects members, but it also protects the church. See, church membership protects the church because, because remember, the church must get the truth right, it must get the leadership right, and it must get membership right. These things, th- three things are, are, are interconnected. They all influence each other. Right? What happens when you, when you, when you say, well, what happens when, when you get the truth wrong? When, you, when the foundational truth that, that the church stands on uh, is compromised? Well, everything else goes wrong. What happens when, when you get leadership wrong and you ordain unqualified leaders? Well, then the church begins to fall apart because of false teaching. Well, what happens when you get membership wrong? You end up with people in the church who have a say in the process, who that now have the influence <clears throat> and can push leadership in the wrong direction. I have, <clears throat> I have seen that in churches in this area. That's why biblical membership is important. People who become members of the church must be committed to the well-being of the entire body. So church membership protects the members and it protects the body. And then fifth, it fulfills the plan of God. Right? Because that's the plan of God. Church, the church goes out into the world evangelizes the lost, and those who come to faith, they integrate into the the local body through baptism, and then they train these disciples up to go out and do the same thing. In the process, the local church grows and adds to its number, and when that does, the resources that the church has to use grows as well, like manpower and the number of people that are out in the world witnessing, and even the material things, like, like finances, that grows as well. And, and soon, if the church then is doing its job, it will raise up these leaders in the church who become elder-qualified men who then go out into the world and plant other churches, which is exactly the plan that we're trying to do with Pakistan, is we're trying to help them to grow a biblical model of teaching, training, and evangelism to where they go and plant other churches. That's the model. Church growth 
fuels that. This kind of growth is impossible without church membership. The spread of the gospel depends upon committed members contributing time, effort, energy, expertise, prayer, and financial resources to reach that goal. And the spread of the gospel requires church membership that it grows. But with that, there's also a problem that comes along with that last one. It is true that we should seek growth in the church membership and growth in the resources that come from that growth because it gives the church more to work with in an effort to fulfill the Great Commission. But the problem has become in the 20th century is that, is that this truth has become the primary focus of most, most churches. The primary focus of the church in the 20th century is numerical growth. That is the goal. That is how they measure success. Instead of the, the primary goal of replicating churches and church planting, it's become, become numerical growth. We've lost sight of the real goal, which is the Great Commission, and we've exchanged it for, for numerical growth. And it became about then, how many people can we get here on Sunday morning? How many people can we get here on Sunday morning? How many baptisms can we have? And how can we increase the giving? And how can we increase the size then of the church property so we can squeeze more people in here, so we can increase the baptisms and increase the giving and on and on and on and, and, and on. And, and, and this gave rise in the latter part of the 20th century to the church growth movement, which is basically said we need to do everything we can possibly do to increase the numbers. Now, I don't have time to unpack all the implications of, of, of the church growth movement and all the things that contributed to that, but I can tell you that this, that this focus on numbers in church growth has caused three important things. Number one, it caused theological weakness in the church because churches begin to focus on attracting new members rather than teaching doctrine and helping members to grow up spiritually. That's why Sunday services have become more about entertaining than, than edification. More about making people happy than, than, than focusing on, on Christ. It has also caused a consumer culture when it comes to worship because worship suddenly is about my tastes and my preferences rather than glorifying God. Churches have become like fast food restaurants. I don't like the fries over there. I don't like the way they sing. I, I think that maybe, you know, they might be too loud. Oh, I think they're too quiet. Uh, they're not fast enough. They're, not, they're too slow. The pastor, he always preaches way too long, right? Because about my preferences, right? Third, it causes a rise in unqualified church membership and participation. It's because, it's because church growth is so important that not only the church has lost its theological content, it's also, in many respects, lost the gospel content of what's being preached from the pulpit, it's been reduced as well. That's why churches shy away from talking about difficult subjects like sin and hell and repentance. That's why churches won't openly and clearly talk about important biblical subjects like marriage and faithfulness and the roles, the different roles of men and women in the church and in, 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 in the marriage. That's why so many churches will tiptoe around difficult texts and, and, and churches won't they don't want to offend anybody. They don't want to hurt anybody's feelings because, because, man, if they leave, then they don't come back, and then the church is not growing, and that's not a good thing. And the result has been that churches have been allowing members to become, I mean, unbelievers become members of the church, and, and the unbelievers then serve in areas of ministry. There's a church in Georgia, a mega church in Georgia, that, that brags about, we allow unbelievers to work in the kids' ministry. What? That just doesn't make any sense to me. Not to mention, you better be doing background checks, right? 
I mean, we do background checks on believers, right? I, I, I also know, you know the other prominent mega churches that, that, that they're so concerned about the quality of music that they hire professional musicians who are not members of the church and not believers to come play worship with them, right? And then you have like thousands of people who are not truly believers who become unqualified members giving their input and their vote in the direction a church is supposed to go. We have seen the fruit of that in churches around us, by the way. The church in America is sold its soul for church growth, and what we end up with is, is a congregational full of unregenerate people who think they belong to God but are actually headed for hell. Right? Now, there's a, a, there was a poll that said, you know, that, that church membership is declining and, and people were d- upset about that. And I'm going to tell you, church membership, biblically speaking, is not declining. Right? Church membership, biblically speaking, is not on the decline. Right? What's, what's declining is people who really aren't believers have stopped pretending and, and they're falling away from the church. That's what's happening. It's because before there was a point that culturally... If you were part of a church that, that benefited you because everybody else was supposed to be a Christian, but now that it's cool to basically lampoon and blast the church and, and to be an atheist and to be hateful towards, towards church, then people now are giving up the pretenses and falling away. Right? So church membership, the real church, is actually growing. Right? So with that, this is why getting the church membership is right and why it's so important. We must have a clear understanding of what a true member of the church is and we need to aim for that and growing that is what we need to do. Um, we don't need to grow for growth's sake. In fact, I've had people ask me sometimes, wouldn't it just be great if, you had, if this place was full for three services? And I say, well, that'd be, fi- that'd be fine. But that's not what I'm after. What I'm after is, is seeing the growth in your individual lives and seeing God work in your life and seeing you depend and grow on, you know, for him more. And so, so what we need to do is focus on that. So then who is a true member of the church? What, is, what does that mean? What does that look like? What are the qualifications then to be considered a real member of the church? Well, the first qualification I personally think is obvious, and many of you will think is obvious too, but is, I guess it's not obvious to everyone. The first one is that you must be born again. Now, I had somebody laugh at, uh, at this point in the sermon last time because it said boron again instead of born again. So that's, that's my typo, right? They must be born again. They must be converted as a believer. The membership of the church must be made up of those who are regenerate, those who actually believe in Christ. Right? Now, what that means is we need to make sure that those who become part of the church, officially part of the church, that they're truly believers and that they're truly saved. That's why we at First Baptist Church remind people, just because you prayed a prayer when you were five years old or made, a, you know, or, or made some confession of faith doesn't mean that you actually encountered Christ and believed the gospel. Salvation is not a person simply coming forward emotionally at an altar call crying out to God. Salvation is a supernatural work of God where he takes someone who is dead and makes them alive. That's why we use words like born again. It's a supernatural experience. Being born again is a supernatural work of God in the heart of a believer. So then how do we determine that's happened in a believer? Well, the truth is, I can't definitively determine that. You know why? Because I'm not God. I'm a human being. All I can do is look and take somebody at their word and look for the things that God has told me to look for to see if I believe that someone's actually a believer. 
Because only God is the one who knows that. But he has given the church some litmus tests to be able to at least get and see if they're in the right ballpark. For instance, a person's testimony. You want to know if somebody's a believer, ask him, how did you get saved? How did that happen? If a person was to come to me and say, well, you know, I was really feeling lonely. And somebody told me, if you don't want to feel lonely anymore, just invite Jesus in your heart. And then, and then, you, then you won't feel lonely anymore. And so I did. I invited Jesus in my heart. And, and I don't feel lonely anymore, so I'm saved. I would be like, um... Let me share the gospel with you again, okay? Because I don't know if you really understood, right? But on the other hand, if somebody came to me and said, you know, I got saved because I came to a point in my life where I understood that I needed God desperately and, I, and the weight of my sin was crushing me and I realized that, that the only hope that I had was to take all of my hope and trust to put it on Christ and I heard the gospel and I repented and believed, then I would be like, okay, I think, I, I think there's probably a pretty good chance that there's, there's something really happening in, in your life, Right? Secondly is our confession, right? That's, right? That's why we have a confession of faith or a statement of faith. Our statement of faith or the Baptist faith and message is, is a basic generic statement on the essential things that we think that a person needs to believe in order to be a Christian and to be a member of this church. It covers all the basics. There's a couple of other things that aren't really quite essential, but if it really gets to the heart of the matter, what we think a person needs to know and understand to be a member here. For example, if you don't believe that the Bible is the word of God, I really don't think I can say that, I can stand up for you and say, this person's a Christian. I just can't do that. Or, or if you say to me, I just don't think that Jesus is actually God in the flesh. I think he's some created being. I'm going like, to okay, I know for a fact, and you don't know who he is, right? Or, or if, if, if you were to say to me that, you know, that, that, you know, that the issue of marriage isn't between just a man and a woman, I'd be saying... Maybe we need to go back to the scriptures and see what God actually says about it. Not what my personal feelings are, but what, 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 what God actually says. Then we can, we can determine that, right? The third thing is fruit. What is the fruit of your life? Because we know for a fact that every Christian who believes in Christ will bear fruit in some form or fashion. Not to say that you're going to be perfect, because we know that's not going to happen, right? But we know that something's going to change in your life. Something, if you encounter Christ, you're going to change. One of my favorite stories by one of my favorite preachers, Paul Washer, is this. He says, suppose I was to come to this meeting here, and on my way, I was late. And when I got there, you say, why are you late? Don't you understand we have a schedule to keep? And he says, well, I'm sorry. I was late because I had a flat tire. And and when, when I was changing the tire, I pulled off the lug nut, and it slipped out of my hand, and it went out in the street, and I turned, and before I knew it, a logging truck ran me over. That's why I'm late. And you would immediately see something's wrong with your story. Why? Because you would know if you encountered something as big as a logging truck, you would be changed. Right? Right? Why not then if you encounter something as large as the, as, as the sovereign creation, creator God of the universe, if you encounter him, something in your life is going to change. Again, not that you're going to be perfect, but something in you will begin to be different. The, the sin that you once loved, you begin to hate. And the God that you once detested, you will begin to love. It's not that you have to follow a bunch of rules. It's suddenly something in you begins to become in alignment with who he is. And so if a person tells me, yes, I was saved when I was 14 years old, but they're living in unrepentant sin like adultery or fornication or, 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 or they're just the worst gossip in town or they're abusive to their spouse, I'm going to say, I don't know. I, I, I can't see the evidence that, that you really belong to God. Right? Not to say that a person who's a believer can't fall into bad and egregious sin. They can. But what I do know is this, is if you're a believer... You won't stay there because God 
is a good father. And if you fall into sin, he will come after you, just like a good father, and he will put you back on the path. Through conviction through, of the Holy Spirit, through the conviction of people, through the conviction of words, something will, 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 will break your heart for your sin, and, and, and God will put, restore you back on the path. Right? Something in you will change. You will repent and believe. And so with that, we look at a person's testimony, their confession, and the fruit that they were born again. That's the first requirement for church membership. And then, and then the third, I mean, second requirement is this. They need to be baptized in the body of Christ. That's the command of the Lord. Baptism is a requirement for church membership. It's the outward symbol of an inward reality that a person is born again. It is the public declaration that you're identifying yourself with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and you're identifying with a local body of believers. Baptism is the official ceremony where a person enters the church. Now, please hear me. Baptism won't save you. I've had people say, will you baptize me? Why? To wash away my sins. Uh, Baptism doesn't wash away your sins. Christ's blood does that. Well, I just want to have a fresh start. Well, then put your trust in Christ and have a fresh start. Well, I just want to make sure I'm saved. Well, then that's not the thing to do it, right? It's like this wedding ring right here. This wedding ring does not make me married, right? It's a symbol of that reality. Not having it on doesn't make me unmarried. Does that make sense? Right. So baptism is a symbol of a person claiming to be in Christ. And, And with that, at First Baptist Church, we require that a person, for them to be a member of this church, that they're willing to be baptized in this church, um, or they have been baptized previously in a church that ho- holds to orthodox historic Christian beliefs. So the requirement for church membership is, biblically speaking, is to be born again and to be baptized into the church. That's really the basic requirements for church membership. And we affirm here that church membership is good, and we as a church must be careful to get it right. So now we come to the end of all of this. I know I've packed a lot of theology in in three weeks. Believe me, we could have like, did a, like, a like, six-month course on this. But hopefully now, after all this, you have a better handle and an understanding of the theology of the church, what the church is, what the church does, the mission of the church, and, and the important things that make up the church, like the, the, the truth of the church, the leadership of the church, and the, the membership of the church. And secondly, I hope then you have a better handle on the direction that we're going as a church. We're going to continue to stand firm on this, that this is the word of God. We're going, to, we're going to focus on teaching sound doctrine, and we're going to hold fast to our confession of faith, and we're going to, to change the leadership structure of this church over time, as we can train people to do so, from single elder to, to plural elder, so we can actually have an elder board. Again, this is going to take time, it's going to take energy, it's going to take, it's going to take training to get there, but I think it's the right thing for us to do. And we're going to focus on creating and growing biblically-based members of the, of the church which means we're going to preach the gospel. We're going to continue to call people to repent and believe. We're going to call, we're going to teach the robust sound doctrines of the church, and we're going to call people to grow and get involved in the church's mission for the church, which means we're going to call people to become members of the church. Now understand, hear me. We love people who visit our church. You can hang out here with us as as long as you want to. You can visit as long as you like. I want you to hear me. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you have done. You are welcome here, right? You can visit here. You can spend your whole life simply as an attender of this church, and we will love you. We will care for you. We will pray for you. We will be here for you, right? Our love for, for, for people here is, 
conditionless. But I will say that God is calling you, if you're a believer, to belong. Which means you need to belong somewhere. You need to be a member somewhere. And if you're a believer, then, then when we, then, you know, then we call you to become a member here. And if you love this church family and you trust in Christ, we invite you to consider membership here at First Baptist Church. And, it's, and if that's on your heart, if that's something God has put on your heart, then, then here's what we need you to do. You can take one of those information request cards in front of you, fill it out, and just say, I'm interested in church membership. Or you say, hey, I don't want to do that. I want to do the high-tech thing on my phone. fbcboron at gmail.com. Send me an email and say, I want to talk about church membership. And then we'll set up a time to talk. And then on your way out, if you haven't already read it, um, at the back table, we have our statement of faith. The copy's there free. You can take it with you. But if you're a believer in Christ, God is calling you to membership somewhere. And I'd say, why not here? Finally, if, if, you, if you're not a believer at all, if you, you know, if, you, if you have not actually come and put your faith and your hope and trust in Jesus Christ, if, if you have not actually made that move in your life where you have transferred the hope of your, your eternity off of yourself and onto Christ, or, or maybe you just say, I'm not sure. I mean, maybe at one time when I was like five years old at VBS, I like prayed a prayer, but I'm not sure if I actually know who Christ is. Let me, let me remind you of the call of Christ and the, and the call that is open to you is to repent and believe. You repent of your old life and you turn to God in faith, believing in the gospel. And the gospel simply is, which by the way, I think we should always talk about. The gospel is simply this. God, who is holy, righteous, and just, created all things in the universe perfect. The Bible says it was very good. And God then created the first man and woman and God gave them a command to not eat of the, the fruit on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Satan came along and tempted them, but these people, by their own decision, rebelled against God because they, of their pride and their desire to be like God. Instead of trusting him, they trusted in themselves, and they disobeyed him. And when that happened, all of creation was descended into sin. Now, all of creation still had the marks of the creator, and they were still good in the world, but it's been tainted by sin, and death followed with it. And we then have been born into that world. We all, every one of you, every single one of you are created in the image of God. You are created in the image of God. No matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, you are created in the image of God. Even that, 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 that terrorist leader in Iran was created in the image of God. The problem is, is that, not all, is that, is that our that image has been distorted by our sin nature. We sin against God because that's who we are. That's who we are by our nature. We don't sin because, I mean, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. It's who we are. And because of that, we're objects of the wrath of God, and we deserve nothing from God except for his justice. We don't deserve life. We don't deserve happiness. We don't deserve joy. We don't deserve the next breath that you take. Even that's a gift from him right now. We deserve nothing from him but his justice. And if nothing changes... That's what we're going to get. Because one day we will stand and face God and he will pronounce judgment upon us and he will rightfully give us what we deserve, which he'll cast us into hell for eternity. And the truth is, we can't fix that on our own. 
You can't try hard enough. You can't work hard enough. You can't be a good enough person. You can't follow enough rules. You can't love enough, be compassionate enough, be kind enough. You can't help enough people. You cannot rescue enough kittens out of trees and and walk enough old ladies across the streets. You cannot do it on your own, which means we are helpless and hopeless. But God, according to his loving kindness and his overwhelming grace and mercy, he made a way for us to be rescued. God the Father sent God the Son to the earth to take on a human nature. Jesus Christ became one of us, born of a virgin, and then lived the perfect life that you couldn't live and then fulfilled the law that you couldn't fulfill. And if that weren't enough, then he suffered on the cross and died to pay the penalty that you couldn't pay, taking upon himself the wrath and the full hatred of God against your sin. And on that cross... He died, taking away your sin, and then in return, giving to you his righteousness. Those who are in Christ are perfectly righteous, not because of who they are, but because of what Christ has done. Christ died on the cross, physically, completely, was buried and put in the grave, and then three days later, literally and physically, rose, proving that he is what he claimed to be, and that he can do what he promised to do, which is to save people from their sin, and that he conquered sin and death, and now sits at the right hand of the Father, And that he's interceding for those who believe in him. And he is offering you everlasting life. All you need to do is simply repent and believe. Repent of your sin and believe the gospel. And when you believe, the, the bonus is that God will send into your heart God the Holy Spirit who will then live in you and will lead you and guide you and shape you more and more progressively over time in the image of our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. And so the call that I give to you, as always, is to repent and believe. The words repent and believe are, for, are, are, are present tense imperative, which means we don't just repent and believe one time like we took a flu shot and said, I did that. We continually repent and we continue to believe. So let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.